This has been a hard week for me and my family. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you know that last week I was not able to record or put out a podcast because our church experienced a major water leak that caused us to have to move out of our sanctuary where all of our recording equipment is and into our fellowship hall. And I was hopeful that this week I would have a recording and that we were set back up with that equipment in the fellowship hall and and hopefully able to record the sermon. I was preparing to preach this past Saturday, working on my notes for the following day when I got a call of a tragic event in our family and the death of a, a precious young man. I took off that afternoon and went to be with my family and uh, as, I, as I left town, I called our student pastor, Tim Kilgore, and, and asked him if he would, he would preach for me, and he graciously agreed. That is a gift, by the way, to have someone you can call at the very last minute and ask them to preach and know that they both can preach and will faithfully preach God's Word and will be kind enough to, to do that for you. So I, I did not preach this past Sunday. Uh, I was with family in the hometown of Columbus. And then uh, this past week, uh, we were in Columbus again, Tuesday and Wednesday for, for the funeral. So I, two weeks going, no podcast. I wanted to, to do something this week. Uh, and so I looked back in, our, in, our, in my archives to see what would be a good, good sermon that uh, had preached somewhat recently, but, but had not been on the podcast. And in 2020, I did a series out of the book of James. I very much enjoyed preaching it. Um, it ministered to me greatly. The practical theology of James was a great blessing to me. And uh, in September of 2020, I preached out of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, where James calls us to draw near to God. Anytime life brings about the difficulties of living in a fallen world um, to the forefront, uh, this is a good word to draw near to God, not only that we draw near to Him, but that He will draw near to us. Of course, this word is a confrontation of our sin, but even as um, the text uh, diagnoses the problem, which is our sin, it very much speaks to the remedy, which is the forgiveness we find in Jesus and the hope that we rest in, that when we do return, draw near to the Lord, He will draw near to us. So uh, with that said, here is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, a sermon I preached in 2020 uh, titled, Draw Near to God. We'll be uh, in, the, in the first 10 verses this morning, James chapter 4. Here's what the Word of God says. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Are, are you... 
and, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he, which he has made to dwell in us, but he, but, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Most of the time, comments are made in conversation with friends that you don't typically remember and they don't make necessarily a lasting impression upon you. But every now and then, you'll have a conversation with a friend or somebody that you know that they say something in the, in the context of that conversation that, that strikes you in the moment and it leaves an indelible mark upon your memory. And you return to it over and over again, thinking about the meaning and the consequence of what, of what they said. A friend of ours made such a statement to us at a a former church that has stayed with us ever since. In fact, it's been a subject of conversation in our, in, our, in our household many, many times. It was during a time of church conflict. Now, unfortunately, and we're going to talk about this more later, but church conflict is not unusual. Most churches, if not all churches, have known such uh, periods of time. And, and this church was in a period of conflict. And our friend said to us, speaking about the conflict and and their disheartenedness about what was happening, they said to us, I just wish everyone could just get along. Now, at first, we agreed with both the sentiment and the statement. Such a desire for peace seems reasonable and worthy of pursuit. Let's just get along. Let's just find a way to be at peace with one another. But as we reflected on the statement in, in light of the conflict that was happening at the church, we began to see this desire that everyone get along as something not to be desired and, in fact, something of, uh, that was working against genuine health. At the time, the source of the conflict in the church was not theological or doctrinal. The members were not wrestling with how best to interpret the commands of Scripture or to understand the teachings of Scripture. 
At the time, the source of the conflict was not methodological. So there wasn't, a, there wasn't a debate about, they weren't wrestling with how best to live out the commands of God and how to apply those commands of God and the teachings of Scripture in how we do ministry in church and, and the like. No, like so often church conflict is, the conflict that was vexing the church were disputes over temporal things and individual desires and opinions. And we came to recognize that we did not agree with our friend's desire for peace. It is not that we didn't want peace, but rather we recognize that the lack of conflict would not produce a healthy church. Our friend desired peace as the ultimate goal. Let's do whatever we can to just get along, have peace, and quiet the conflict. But what we desired more was that the church would confront the cause of its quarrels the reasons for its conflicts, repent of sin, and be restored to a right relationship with God. Now let's be honest for just a minute. If we had to choose, not if anybody could know how we chose, but just from the secrecy of our hearts, many of us would choose a fake sense of peace over getting right with God. Because getting right with God gets down to the core, to the heart of who we are. It exposes sin in our lives. It requires us to be confronted with our relationship with him. In our passage today, James takes on the cause of conflict in the church and broken relationships with God and gives a clear, a clear solution. And here it is. I mean, this is it. This is the whole sermon in one sentence. Draw near to God. Resist the devil, and God will draw near to you and exalt you. That's it. I want to divide our time this morning in these three ways. Number one, the problem, the remedy, and the hope. Before we can get to the remedy, before we can get to the hope, we have to begin with the problem. And the problem is that we have broken relationships. We have a broken relationship with one another, a broken relationship with God. And, and we're going to talk about even in that a concept of, of powerless prayer and, and, and uh, ineffective walking out our faith. James begins in the very first verse with these words. What is the source of, of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, one of the interesting things about verse 1 is he's assuming there are things of quarrels and conflicts. James was speaking to a people that were long removed from us in time, but they are very much connected to us in reality of that. I was thinking as I was preparing, I don't know of a single pastor that I've ever known that didn't have long stories, many stories of some of the most harrowing and crazy conflicts that have erupted in church. In fact, like fishing stories, when pastors get together, we one-up each other on how crazy of a conflict we've experienced in our, in our ministry. James is writing to people and he says, what's the source of your quarrels and your conflicts? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war on your members? In the first six verse, verses, James lays out the problem. And, and a couple of things here. Number one, he recognizes that there are broken relationships in the context of the church. In fact, you see that in just that first half of verse A, of verse, a verse 1, where he speaks about uh, conflicts and quarrels. Uh, genuine faith and obedient discipleship require that we separate from the world. When, when you attempt to be both a friend of God and a friend of the world, you contaminate your faith. 
And this contamination and unfaithfulness to God results in conflict. And it results in conflict in a number of ways. Number one, with, with, with one another. So we have broken relationships with one another. James begins there. What's the source of your quarrels and conflicts? It's not your worldly pleasures. But he goes on and he'll talk about how there's conflicts with your own self, that you have powerless prayer, ineffective ministry, and, and ultimately you have a conflict with God and that you are uh, living in rebellious unfaithfulness. I think James, I know James is writing here to the church and referring to fighting and conflict among church members. And I, I would just simply point to you the two last verse, the two last two words when he says among you, indicating he's talking about inside the church, church people. It's no secret that quarrels and conflicts are common in the church. And I think there are two causes for this. Both of them are extremely unpleasant to say, and I know they are unpleasant to hear. First would be disobedient members living in unrepented sin, and second would be unsaved church members. Now, frankly, what I have read in, in my preparation for today most push toward the second, but I, but I think there's room here for the first as well. You see, if someone is an enemy of God, then they, by definition, will also be an enemy of believers in God's church. This is why Paul commands that believers not marry unbelievers when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers for, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Baal or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. Now listen to me carefully. Broken relationships are not the problem of the church. Broken relationships are a symptom of the problem in the church. The problem in the church is not broken relationships. The problem in the church is unrepented sin. Not only are there broken relationships, but James also goes on to say there's powerless prayer. Look at the second half of verse 1 on 2 and 3. He says, is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war, wage war in your members? You, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I think it's safe to say that these same Attributes that James is referring to here can apply both to those who are unregenerated, in other words, not saved in the church, and those who are living in unrepented, rebellious sin. He lists here three causes of these personal conflicts. The second half of verse 1, uncontrolled desire. So he says, it's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. In the first half of verse 2, he talks about unfulfilled desires. And so he says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And then in the second half of verse 2 and then into 3, he talks about selfish desire. Are you not envious and, 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 and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask because you do not receive. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so you may spend it on your own pleasures. And you'll notice in all of these, the end result is, a, is, a, is a, a faith that is powerless. 
ineffective. It's interesting, there's requests, there's prayer happening, but there's no answers happening. Powerless to pursue the will of God. Powerless to trust God to provide. Powerless, to pr- uh, powerless prayer to, to desire what God desires and see his purposes accomplished. And once again, the problem in the church is not broken relationships. That's a symptom. And the problem of the church today is equally not powerless prayer. Powerless prayer is a symptom of the problem, not the problem itself. Powerless prayer is a result of unrepented sin, and that, my friends, is the the problem. Broken relationships, powerless prayer. And then we also see here rebellious unfaithfulness in verses 4, 5, and 6. Where James brings it all to a head where he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? The greatest conflict of all is that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. James even makes it clear, to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Now, this is an absolute statement. In other words, there's there's no gray area here. Friendship with the world, enemy of God. Friend of God, enemy of the world. God is unwilling to share his glory with anyone or anything else. This is the point Joshua made when he was dividing the promised land amongst the tribes, and he called them together, and he preached a wonderful message. He says, listen, you got to choose today. You can worship the gods that your fathers worship beyond the river. You can worship the gods that, of the land of which we are inhabiting, but you can't worship those gods and our God. Either choose him or choose them, but you must make a decision. And he says those famous words, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was making the same case. You can't be friends with the gods around us and be a servant of the living God. Either you're a servant of the living God and an enemy of these worthless idols, or you're a servant of the idols and you're an enemy of the living God. Dear friend, listen to me carefully here. What plagues the church today is nothing else but friendship with the world. When you try to be friends with God and be friends with the world, you eventually will choose worldly pleasure over godly obedience. When you try to be friends with God and with the world, you eventually will elevate personal pleasure over sacrificial suffering. When you try to maintain both fellowships, you'll give your attention and time to worldly pursuits over worship. And when forced to choose between worldly acceptance and faithful obedience, you will choose worldly acceptance every day if you're trying to be both friends with the world and friends with God. We're seeing that every single day. As people who have church attendance in their history, but they've been trying to to straddle the fence, both be friendly with the world and friendly with God, when they're confronted with who do they choose, they're choosing the world. My prayer My prayer is that at this point, God is breaking your heart over your sin and rebellion. But I want you to be encouraged. Verses four, excuse me, verses five and six point both to the jealousy of God. He's unwilling to share your allegiance and your friendship, your attention, your worship with anything else. God is a righteously jealous God. 
but he is also a God full of amazing grace. James is clear. There is a remedy to the problem. And the remedy we find in verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil. Look at what he says in verse 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So here's the remedy. First and foremost requires that we submit ourselves to God and that we reject the devil. Drawing near to God begins with submission to God. That is surrendering yourself to his authority, following and obeying his commands no matter what. Now, submitting to God is the first act of obedience that leads to salvation. All of you in this room, if you are saved today, began first and foremost your life of redemption with an act of submission. Romans tells us that to be saved, that you must confess with your mouth what? That Jesus is, do you know what it is? That he is Lord. By definition, to declare Jesus as Lord of your life means that you have submitted your whole life and everything in it to the Lordship, the authority of Jesus. Whenever I have an opportunity to read that verse and be in the presence of someone who's coming to know Jesus, I I always follow that up with, listen, if you're truly a follower of Jesus and he's truly your Lord, then the natural response to anyone who's a follower of the King Jesus is to know what he has commanded so that you can obey. It makes absolutely no sense to declare yourself a believer and yet have no evidence in your life of submitting to his authority. Because to be a believer in Jesus means that he is Lord of your life. That's why when James gives the remedy for what is vexing the church, he begins there as well. Submit yourself to God. In sin, we are rebels and enemies. But in salvation, we are submissive servants to the king. Submitting has a a related response. So we submit ourselves to God and we resist or we reject the evil one. And what James has in mind here is an active response, actively turning away from the deceiver. Drawing near to God requires both submission to God and rejection of the devil. Those those things go together. That is to move to God and to move away from the devil, to turn toward God, and to turn your back on the devil. The remedy begins with submitting to God and rejecting the the devil. But then it's interesting, James moves right on to the second thing, and he says, but now you must draw near to God. Oh, and there's a promise with this one, and he will draw near to you. In verse 8, James gives a simple command, draw near. To draw near is connected to being in intimate fellowship. Submit has that idea of surrendering your authority to God's authority. It has that idea of placing yourself under the the headship of Jesus. But drawing near has has an intimate feel. It has that coming close feel. It has that idea of being pulled into the presence of God. Have you ever noticed how when you're angry with someone, 
or if you've experienced in some way a broken relationship that's put some enmity between you and somebody else, that you naturally, physically pull away from them. I wish my sister was here. I would make her so angry when we were in high school going together, but she had to ride with me to, to school every day. And she'd get in my car, and she would turn her face out the side window of my car, and she would scoot as far over as she could because she was mad with me. And when she was mad, can you believe that? How could anybody be mad with me? But she was. And because she was mad with me, she wanted to get physically as far away as, from me as possible. That's natural, isn't it? When you're mad with somebody, you move away from them. You turn your face away from them. You might even turn your back toward them. And yet when a relationship is restored, the very opposite is true. You draw near, you draw close, you draw intimately with them. And that's the idea here. Draw near to God. The command is that we must turn toward God and draw close to him in intimate relationship. What keeps many of us from doing this in our personal relationships is the fear of rejection. So there may be somebody that you had a broken relationship with and you would like to restore that relationship, but you're nervous, you're scared, you're afraid that if you come near to them, they'll reject you because they're still angry or frustrated with you. But that's why I think James includes the promise here. This is the amazing grace of the gospel. That is that when you draw near to God, the word of God says he will. He will draw near to you, not he might, not that he should, not that he may, not that he could, but he will draw near to you. It is a reciprocating response. He'll draw you in as you draw near to him. You see, friends, in sin, we are the ones who moved away from God, not he moving away from us. And so the command is to draw near to the Lord and in grace he will receive you like the prodigal son and draw you near to him. But then James moves into some territory that frankly just does not sit well with our modern American culture. Here's where we are in our cultural context. We've been trained and, and, um, and become comfortable with never hearing anything that upsets us. I mean, there's tremendous cultural pressure right now being exerted that no matter what you do, wicked or otherwise, to try to keep anything negative being said that might hurt your feelings, that might cause you any kind of emotional distress. And we might look at that and even be, be condemning of that in the secular culture, but friends, we do that right here in the church. And there's an expectation that when you come here that you leave here happy and uplifted and encouraged. So here's what James says to you. Quit laughing, start crying. Exchange grief for joy. Excuse, excuse me, exchange joy for grief. Weep and mourn and grieve over your sin. That's not language that's well received in our culture today, but that's part of the remedy to grieve over your sin. Look at what he says in verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We like that. But then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. You see, the closer you are to the holiness of God, by definition, the more you become aware of your own sin. 
Friend, sin is serious and deathly destructive. Rebellion against the King of Kings has real and eternal consequences. The natural result of drawing near to God is repenting of what first drew you away from God. Two responses here. To be sanctified and to mourn the destruction of sin. So when God draws you to himself and you become aware of his holiness and your sinfulness, the first response is to put away all that pollutes in your life. And so so James references Jewish ceremonial cleansing practices here in in the second part of verse 8. And he talks about cleansing your hands, sanctifying yourself, making yourself ceremonial clean before holy God. It's the same idea that Hebrews 12 is getting at when it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. and Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Many of you in your own personal testimonies have a testimony of when God got a hold of your life. And when he did, the holiness of God that you were confronted with exposed the things that were polluting in your life. And as a result of that, you had to throw away some stuff. You had to get rid of some things in your life that were ungodly, that were polluting, that were staining Now, that is good and right in the early days of your walk with the Lord. But, friends, I think that ought not to be a historical reality. I think that ought to be a continual reality. Have we not let things into our church, into our lives, into our minds that ought not to be? And the answer to that is yes. And when we're confronted with the holiness of God, we ought to weep over that. We ought to grieve over that. But we can't just weep and grieve and go, well, isn't that a shame? There must be an act of removing, sanctifying putting away, washing our hands, getting right before God. But related to being sanctified is, yes, grief and sorrow over sin. James references three emotions here. He says, be miserable, mourn and weep, and, and be filled with gloom. Now, I've already said this doesn't track well with our cultural desire to pursue whatever makes you happy and to avoid anything that condemns or convicts. But listen to me here. The one who does not grieve over sin has not rejected the devil. And the one who has not rejected the devil has not submitted to God. See, this is what I know to be true. Some of us have sin in our life that we know maybe is not right and polite company and maybe ought not to be done, but we relegated it to, well, you know, it's not that bad. But we've never shed a tear over it. We've never grieved how it is a rebellious act against the King of Kings. We've never mourned the destruction that it has brought. We've never contemplated how it breaks the heart of God. And we've certainly never understood that it was that very sin that compelled Jesus to hang on the cross for our salvation. But if you're not grieving over sin, you've not rejected the devil. And if you've not rejected the devil, you're not a friend of God. There is hope, friends. If it ended right there at verse, in the verse 9, that'd be pretty harsh. But James has one more thing to say here. 
And he begins with what is in line with what he's just said, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And then he says, and he will exalt you. Now here's the hope, two things. God forgives and God restores. James commands here in this last verse, that simple command, humble yourself. And this is not some false uh, pretense of uh, feigned humility for external consumption. This humility is what comes from recognition of true unworthiness. I would just connect you here with the response of Isaiah when he, be, when, he, when, he, when he was in the presence of God, Isaiah 6, and he says, Woe is me, I, for, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. In other words, he understood the glory of God and his unworthiness to be in the presence of God. That's the idea of humble yourself before God. And the command is followed by a promise. And he, that is God, will exalt you. That is, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he receives us and he forgives us. Now, friends, listen to me. I don't know a better word and a testimony to the amazing grace of the gospel than that right there. Out of the same breath of humble yourselves, mourn and weep and be filled with gloom because of your sin, the same breath says, but humble yourself before God and he will exalt you. Jesus said, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. First John chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, he will forgive us and he will restore us. Not only does God forgive us of our sins, but he also restores our relationship with him. Now, the best example of this I can think of in all of Scripture is the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. You may be familiar with that story. In that parable, the son takes his inheritance from his father, and he goes and squanders it on wickedness and sin. And it's only when that the consequences of that sin come crashing down upon him, and he finds himself in horribly humbled situation that he decides to return home not as a son but as a servant because he realized that being a servant in his father's house is better than being a servant in anybody else's house. Luke tells us in chapter 15, Jesus says these words, I, I will get up, this is the, 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 and Jesus is telling of the parable, the, the, the words of the prodigal son. He says, I will get up and go to my father and, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer to be called worthy of your son. Make me as one of your hired men. If you know the story, it gets better because when the son drew near to his father, in the story, when the father saw his son at a distance coming home. Luke 15 tells us, and he got up and he came to his father, that is the prodigal son, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him, drew him near and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to be merry. In other words, the father didn't just forgive his son. He restored his son to full sonship. 
That's the hope, friends. The hope is not in making it through your life merry and happy and ignoring all the trouble. The hope is repenting of our sin, humbling ourselves before God, and letting Him exalt us. So here's the... Here's the difference I want you to understand. That is, direction is more important than location. Direction is more important than direction. We tend to give more importance to location, but I believe it matters more where you are heading than where you are. So let me explain by just telling a little story. Consider two people. Consider two people. First would be Brother Bob, and second would be Wesley Wayward. Now, Brother Bob is a leader in the church. He's a deacon. He's a father, faithful father and, and husband. He serves on several committees. He's well-known in the, in the community and faithful in his business practices. He serves wherever there's opportunity to serve. He has for a very long time. When the leaders of the church think of who they need to go to for help, Brother Bob's the very first person they tend to, to go to. He oftentimes has prominent roles in front of the church. And in fact, if you ask most of the people in the church uh, an example of righteousness and one to emulate, they would say, well, Brother Bob seems to really be doing it well. On the other hand, you've got Wesley Wayward. Now, Wesley hasn't attended church since he was a kid and he visited his grandmother. He knows very little about the Bible and doesn't even know the difference between the Old Testament and the New, if you were to ask him. Wesley has a lot of friends in the community, but none of them go to church. And he has a reputation amongst them all of one who knows how to enjoy a good time. Wesley has had countless one-night stands and a number of live-in girlfriends. And though he has some children, he's never married. He's had many occasions where he has been too drunk to, even, uh, to, to, to drive himself home, and he's even experimented with drugs. Wesley has tattoos on his arms and other places on his body that are not appropriate for mixed company, words and images that are pornographic and wicked. Now, if you were to put Brother Bob and Brother Wesley together, I think it would be a safe assumption to say that Brother Bob's location, and if you were to put that on the spectrum of who is more righteous, who is more godly, we would say, well, Brother Bob is certainly closer to the Lord than Wesley is. And based on external uh, um, what we can see, that would be reasonable to assume. But, but, but if we could see into the heart of these two men, we, we would see that when we look into to Brother Bob's heart, though he did many righteous things for, for people to see, and, and, and we would also see that he was lusting for the pleasures of the world. And he was envious of other people's success. And what was driving him every day was to be successful and the pleasures that that success would bring in the world. We would see a man who was outwardly acknowledging the authority of God, but whose heart was ultimately concerned only with his own pleasures and his own pursuits. 
And if we could see into Wesley's life, we would, we would find a man absolutely broken over his sin. He didn't know a lot about the Bible. Nobody's asking him to teach Sunday school, but he believes it to be true. And so every day he's reading through it, trying to understand what it means and what God is commanding him to do. He's brokenhearted over the hurt and destruction his sin has caused. He's even canceled his Netflix subscription because he understands that what he's been watching on it is wicked and not worth his time and righteousness before God. He spent an afternoon recently cleaning out things from his home that were stained with sin, CDs and movies and alcohol and pornography, throwing them in the trash as an act of obedience before living God. He's never really attended church, but... He didn't understand everything that's happening during the church service, but he, but he sings every song when he shows up as if it was a, a passionate prayer, a personal prayer of his own, and he's listening intently to the sermon that he might understand what God is teaching him and, and leading him. Now, the two men are separated by location significantly. We can understand that. But they are also separated dramatically by direction. Brother Bob may be well close to what it looks like to be righteous, but he's turned his back on the righteousness of God and he's heading toward the things of the world. And Wesley is far away, at least what it looks like, from the righteousness of God, but he's brokenhearted. He's repented. He has turned himself toward God. He has rejected the devil and he is drawing near to God. And dear friends, here's the point I want to make. I'd rather have Wesley than Bob. Because the Bible says that when you resist the devil, he will flee. And when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Who's in a better position? Is it Bob? No, it is Wesley because he's drawing near to God and God will draw near to him. Dear friends, there is no issue today that is vexing the church more than unrepented sin. The answer, the remedy this morning is as James prescribes. Repent. Submit yourself to God. Turn away from the wicked one. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.